the size of the market has shrunk considerably, and I, I didn't realize that. Now I look at it and go, yeah, it's perfectly normal that you were working twice as hard to make the same amount of money. You were gaining market share of a much smaller market. You just didn't know what was going on. So the question is this, how do most agents find the secrets to succeed in today's competitive real estate market, especially when the top agents are keeping those secrets to themselves? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. Hi, I'm Aaron Amuchastegui, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Amuchastegui, and hey, I am back um, doing another interview, my sixth or seventh since my hiatus in May. I am coming from my remote studio in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You'll see behind me doesn't look quite the same. Um, but, you know, we had a lot of applicants this month, and this was a guy that uh, Evan, our producer, reached out to me and said I should be the one doing the interview for Eric. So I get to interview Eric Bramlett from Bramlett Residential. He's uh, from Austin, Texas. We just found out we're sometimes we're probably passing each other on bikes on random mornings out there. Eric, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, I, you know, we got to have a little bit of a conversation so far, but I'm excited about where it's going. Um, so how long ago did you become an agent? Yeah, so I, I licensed in 2003. Uh, I always joke that I got serious about it in 2012. I'll tell you my story a little bit if you'd like to hear about that. But I've been doing it for almost 20 years. I uh, really had my head down for about the last 10. Yeah. So you are in. So you live in Austin now. Where were you when you got licensed? Were you in Austin then? I was in Austin, yeah. Um, I was young. I was you know, 23 years old, uh, living in an apartment. Doing an apartment That's located. awesome. So, yeah. Were you born and raised out here? No, no. This was uh, moving to the big city for me. I'm from Oklahoma, and I uh, moved here right out, right after school, 2002. 2002. Cool. So you got to Austin, 2002. Finished school, got into real estate. Why did you decide? And you said you were only kind of doing it back then. Why did you decide to get a real estate license? Um, you know, it, it seemed like the thing to do. Uh, I was bartending and uh, had planned to go to law school. I uh, decided not to go to law school and uh, thought, okay, I'll try this out for a little bit. And uh, it all kind of clicked. It worked and it allowed me to have fun, allowed me to make money. And uh, yeah, that's that's how I got into it. Just sort of fell into it, which happens with a lot of people. So. Yeah. So remember way back when to then, so 2003 was a market was doing pretty good back then. You know, 2001, we had September 11th. And then as some stimulus, they started lowering rates pretty heavily in 02. 03, people started to buy houses. You know, market was kind of booming in other places. What was it like in Austin, Texas way back then? Yeah, so I didn't really know it at the time, but Austin was still recovering from recession. It got hammered uh, pretty well with uh, the dot-com bust. And yeah. So yeah, we were watching. I was watching prices go down, watching properties sit on the market for a long time. Um, but I was brand new, and I didn't have you know my expenses were super low, so it it didn't seem that bad. Uh, and then everything kind of turned around really quickly. You know, th we watched um, the mortgage boom. There was a massive refi boom, and then Austin started picking up steam in 05 and 06. Uh, you know, just long enough uh, for for late 2007 and 2008 to feel really crummy. Um, but yeah, it was it was an interesting interesting time to get into the business. Yeah. So the so tell me. So how did how did you do your first deal? When was your first deal? How'd you get it? Yeah. So um, I got my start uh, literally as an apartment locator, and I didn't know the city very well. I, I took a gig over on East Riverside, which looks very different today than it did then. Then it was uh, you know a lot of bus stops and vagrants walking around, and I did that for 
six months, moved to a Keller Williams team at that point, continued doing a lot of leasing. I sold my first house to a bartender friend of mine. You remember back then you didn't really have to prove income or anything like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, so he um, helped him buy a house. Uh, he just got a couple of roommates so that he could pay the bills. Um, interesting thing, he still has the house and it's been an incredible investment for Tony. Um, but that was my first deal. And then I uh, started playing around with marketing and scared up some other deals. And, uh, you know, just started hit, started kind of rolling probably in, say, 2006, whenever I learned how to uh, get good at Internet marketing. So, yeah. So the so market starts getting strong in 05, 06. I, it was so funny in passing. You just said, remember how we didn't have to get anything done back then? Most of the agents around, you know, like three quarters of the agents around have been agents like the last, you know, 10 years, maybe, like maybe 15 years. And so we hear about the crash of 08, 09. And then everyone, and then everyone talks about how different it is now. And I, and I think there's, there's, I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit because I've experienced many up and down markets. And right now is a really, really funky time in real estate, but there is, yeah. The one thing we don't, we don't have now is back then anybody could get a loan. It was, um, you know, three Oh four, there was like, Oh, if you don't have a job, if you're, uh, if you're self-employed, like, okay, um, we'll give you a higher. it was essentially like, if you don't have a job, you don't have income, we'll give you a higher rate, yeah. but we'll still let you buy the house. Yeah. It was crazy. It was wild. I mean, you know, I think at the, the peak of the insanity, you could get a liar loan with a 620 credit score. And I'm not even sure if you can get a loan with a 620 with, you know, say, 20% down these days. And I remember if you could prove income, you could get a loan down to 560 at one point, which if you have a 560, you can't even rent a house, right? I mean, your credit's garbage. So they were, they were giving loans to literally anyone. And that's why the recession lasted so long. I mean, that was from 08. And I think Austin was recovered by call it 2012, super long. But there was a big systemic problem and all that stuff had to get washed out of, get washed out of the market in order for that to recover. Um, but yeah, wild times. And I would say, you know, go watch uh, the big short. Um, believe it or not, they are not exaggerating. Like they didn't take any sort of creative licenses with uh, with with the uh, anecdotes that they that they put in that yeah. movie. I thought I, I thought it was pretty pretty brilliant as well. Yeah. And um, when you get to see kind of the the concepts of it, and but yeah, the, I mean, they, we call them liar loans, but it was actually like legal and legit. Oh yeah, it was like okay, like here's your credit score. Just tell us what you think you're gonna make next right. year like if nothing else like you're like well i'm gonna get i'm graduating from college i'm gonna get a job they're like oh what how, do you th- how much do you think you're gonna make i think i'm gonna make 70 grand a year they're like cool put it right, we'll put that <laughs> on there that's fine and it was like yeah really funny you know so um part of my story i was a home builder on the west coast like, okay. like so i graduated from college in 05 high to the housing okay. boom i get recruited by a home builder so I'm developing in Southern California and we're like golfing three days a week because houses are just selling as fast as we can buy them. Come 07, 08, we get crushed. We lay off like 75 people. Um, you know, the guys that own the company are having to do like short sales with these big developments. And we went to like doing manual labor again. And I discovered courthouse step auctions in 09. Okay. And at that time, like two or three people were doing it. So I made a, so I started flipping houses at scale with a bunch of investors to like a thousand houses. And in 2012, you know, Blackstone started coming around and, um, and this was Northern California. They offered to buy my company. They kind of told me they were coming. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't think that they were going to be able to come put us out of business. I was like, I was too cocky and young. Oh, I gosh, mentors. And I was like, you're not going to like, I'm the biggest buyer in Northern California. You're like, who's Blackstone? I've never heard of you guys. So that was dumb. The, 
So 2013, 2014, they put me out of business and I'm like trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I took a flight out to Texas on a whim. I owned an apartment complex in Colleen, okay. which, was, which was like north of Austin. And then I flew out to an auction to buy another apartment complex when it was kind of like my I was out of business. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I stood at an auction there and nobody was there. And like 50 houses sold and nobody bought them. And I, and I chickened out on the apartment, but I told my wife, I'm like, I think there might be a big opportunity to redo in Texas. We didn't hear. So next month I flew out to Texas from California. I bought th uh, two or three houses at auction and it was like off to the races. Nobody was there bidding against me. I was like, this is like California in 2009. So I started buying houses in Texas. I would buy like 10 a month and I would fly back to California. And I said, prices will never go up in Texas. Cause they never, you know, I was so like disheartened from what happened in California. I was like, I just want steady and stable. I'll go buy 10 rentals a month. I won't flip them. I'll just keep doing it. Prices will never go up in Texas. And 2020 hit and we had like five or 600 houses. And then the market, oh, man. And the market changed. Yeah, yeah. So it was, so uh, we moved to Austin in 2009. Okay. Um, so we're not super familiar with what it was like in, you know, 08 to, 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 you know, to 2015. But so tell me about your story from like, so you're, you're like licensed, you're doing it through that time. But you said yeah. you want to talk about like going through that recession and, and like you had a journey during that first 10 years that you went from being like a guy doing apartments to like, cause now you have a big off. Let, let's fast yeah. forward for just a second. How many, how big is your office now? What are you guys doing for volume? Yeah, yeah. So we'll um, we'll finish the year four hundred to four hundred fifty million this year. Um, around forty agents, uh, and I can talk about why I think it's important to always, you know, keep a high uh, production per agent average. Uh, we have agents we've recruited, committed to start at the beginning of the year, put us around fifty five. Uh, we should be at around six hundred million next year. So we're we're what you consider like a high producing mid sized brokerage uh, is what we are right now. And leading up to the recession. You know, I'd started selling houses and I, I, I figured out uh, SEO really well in the mid 2000s and I was kind of early to that. And so things were, I was in my 20s, things were really easy. Um, I was wakeboarding a whole lot. Like I was on Lake Austin, you know, three, four days a week, um, probably very similar to what you're doing. Uh, and then, you know, 08 hit, or really, I always remember it was like my wife's birthday is in August and we were out of the country. And um, August 2007, I was checking my email and like every day it's like, wow, oh, these banks are running out of business. That's weird. And then the next day is like, oh, it's bank out of business. And so that was like, I always remember August 2007 is like the beginning of, of the big crash. And then 08 hit and all the banks were out of business. You know, everything that we knew that we thought was the truth, which is that, you know, the banks knew what they were doing. One, we thought that was true and it wasn't. Um, and, you know, that people were easy, easy to get financing and that changed. Um, so everything shifted all of a sudden. And then the buyer pool really dried up. We still had all of these, uh, you know, Californians moving here and, and all of them, they're moving in droves, but none of them could buy because they had either short, just short sold their house uh, or they couldn't sell their house. So, so they're moving here. And so, man, I started doing a bunch of rentals again, which doesn't pay very well, but I'd always plan on going to law school. So um, took the LSAT again, uh, got accepted to UT actually for the, for the class of, I think it would have been class of 2011 or 2012. And um, like, cool, okay, that's what I'll do. I'm just out. Like, this real estate thing was fine, but I want to be a lawyer anyways. Um, and I got audited by the IRS. And um, so it's like, okay, you can go to law school and, you know, fight this IRS audit at the same time. That's going to end well um, or not. So I was kind of, my, my hands were tied. Like, I couldn't go to law school. I had to stick with it. And uh, what I told everybody was, um, man, I'm working twice as hard to make the same amount of money that I did last year. And it was very true. I mean, and I didn't understand market dynamics. I didn't understand like, oh, okay, what well, year? that was 2008, 2008, 2009. 
something like that. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the, the size of the market had shrunk considerably. And I, I didn't realize that. Now I look at it and go, yeah, it's perfectly normal that you were working twice as hard to make the same amount of money. You were gaining market share of a much smaller market. You just didn't know what was going on. And then in 2012, I remember things were getting a little easier. And um, I saw my old business partner. Uh, we were at a, a Movember party. I don't know if you remember the Movember things where you grow a mustache for November. Yeah. Yeah, and we were at this November party, and um, so it was in November. And I was like, "Keenan, how you know how how are you doing, man?" He's like, "I'm doing really well." He's like, "How are you doing, man?" I was like, it's the "Best year I've ever had." Um, and I didn't realize it until the end of the year that I'd done. And at the time, I think it was like I don't know, ten or eleven million. Um, and then 2013, I ended up doing I think 21 million that year. And I was like, "Oh, it's a fluke. That won't happen again." And then I'd have to look back at the numbers. But 2014, I think we were up to like 30 or 40 million. I took on like one agent. Um, 2015, we had two agents and I, I, again, 60 or 70 million, but things just started going up after, after that. And it's because we gained all this market share during the recession. I, I worked really hard out of necessity. Um, the amazing side effect was like, oh, you gained this market share and then you retained it whenever the market came back. And that's why, you know, the, that's why the production just went, went really high. Why it went, why it went up. So the, so you were going to go to law school, but the IRS audit, you were like, this is just going to be really hard. I got audited in like, I want to say like 2013 and it was a night, dude, it was a nightmare. It took like months to get it done. At the end of the day, nothing, they were like, okay, no change. But I spent so much money just like sending them boxes full of stuff. What a weird change to like get thrown into that. You're like, wait, I can't actually do what I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a little disheartening. I mean, I felt, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I like to be able to do what I want to do, right? And I couldn't, so so that was a big bummer. Um, but again, I mean, in, in hindsight, it was a massive blessing. You know, uh, my sister actually went to law school that year at UT, and uh, when she graduated, it was like the worst job market for lawyers in like the history of lawyers, um, because it, I, you know, I wasn't the only one thinking like, hey, I should just go to law school during this time. Everybody was going to grad school, and so when they all graduated, there's this massive glut of highly educated people, and they were paying them peanuts, you know. Um, so it was, it, again, very lucky. I, I, I didn't plan it, um, but it couldn't have been planned any better if I had. So, Yeah. So the I, I got I to share a random story. You're talking about, like, we realized that banks didn't actually know what they were doing. In, like, 09, there was one of the banks had just gotten taken over by the Fed, and they were putting up all these development assets for bid. And we were, like, a failed home builder at the time. We hadn't figured out what we were doing yet. And this big hedge fund out of, like, New York, hired us to go to, to Phoenix, Arizona to figure out to send you this asset stack. And the bank had these asset stacks and said, hey, we've got like a $2 million loan on this project. And when you get there, you're going to see 15 houses and 10 pads and like, you know, 20 finished lots. And that's essentially what they were loaning on. And so okay. sometimes we would get there and we would see exactly that. And other times they would say like, you're going to see 30 finished houses and we would get out there and there would be nothing. It would be farmland. They'd never put roads in. And like builders were sending them pictures of like, you know, other developments. Oh my God. And it was like the banks were funding and some of the banks had like funded like $10 million on a full development where they thought there was like houses they could foreclose on and stuff at the end of the day. And we're like, well, no wonder the banks are getting taken over by the Fed and going under. Like they were like giving money and there was no money coming back. It was, yeah, banks did not know what they were doing. And that was a, that's a really crazy epiphany back then and where, and I think that that could, you could say that like banks are different now, but when we're looking at this like weird world that we live in, you, you know, there's a lot of expectations of like investors know what they're doing or businesses know what they're doing or, Hey, this, like it's a publicly traded stock. And then realizing like nothing is, nothing is 
for certain. So right now we're, we're I mean, we're going into recession. We're in recession. Real estate market yep. has drastically changed, probably a lot like it felt in 03 or a lot like it felt in 08, 09. We're not seeing the glut of foreclosures right now, but we are seeing this whole concept of like buyers that we're going to pay 400 a year ago, only want to buy a house for $300,000 now. Right. And sellers aren't going to sell their house for 300 and they're like, I guess I'll just stay here forever. Um, so the, the sellers aren't really willing to discount to what buyers can afford now. So we're going to be in this weird time. I agree. So there's going to be new agents listening to this podcast or, or seasoned agents that have been around for the last five years. And now they're entering this recession. Like your playbook from before was you worked twice as hard. You expanded market share during this time. Over the next couple of years, we're going to lose half the agents that are licensed agents right now. Right. So what advice would you like? What's the playbook? What advice would you give people? What should they be doing right now? Especially knowing that you did it once before and at the end of it, it turned out all right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, work really hard, right? Uh, stay productive. That's the that's the name of the game. And and don't don't be disheartened by it. The what we're telling our agents right now is that <clears throat> look, this feels really crummy, and it, and it looks like things are are going to continue to be bad for a long time. But they're going to get better. It, it's it's going to get better in six months, eighteen months, or thirty six months. I'm not sure when, but it's going to get better. We're not going into some catastrophic scenario whereby people are not going to want to buy real estate for the rest of our lives or anything like that. Right. Um, so the people that work hard are going to take market share. And like you said, a minute ago, you know, half the agents in 08 to from 08 to 2012, half the agents went out of the business. And that's the reason why it felt really easy in 2012 because those agents were out of the business and we gained all this, we'd gained all this market share and it'll happen. This, it'll happen this time too. Uh, the agents who stick around, the agents who don't go out of business, uh, will be very seasoned. They will be very, very successful whenever the market comes back. So you just need to be there whenever it comes back. The, the worst thing you could possibly do is drop out. Like, don't go to law school. <laughs> don't, you know, don't, don't go get a job doing something else because you feel like that real estate is dismal. If you're a newer agent, you're actually in a pretty good spot, right? I mean, you didn't uh, take on a whole bunch of expenses. You're not having to cut those expenses. Um, you just need to survive, right? So there's a saying in the tech industry that when there's a downturn, you survive, then you thrive. And that's what's going to happen here. Those who survive will thrive afterwards. Yeah. I think it's a great perspective. It's a great perspective right now because what all I, when I remember of when I, you know, in 07, 08 was as a home builder, you know, we laid off 75 people, but we didn't lay them off fast enough. We didn't cut costs fast enough. And then we got to this point where we had to start choosing what bills we were going to pay and what bills we weren't going to pay. You know, and I was lucky I was an employee then and not an owner because I got to learn right. some of these lessons. But then later in 2012, 2013, when Blackstone started taking all of my market share and I still had too many employees and too many things, I didn't cut fast enough at that time. So right now there's like these two different options and maybe it's a hybrid, right? One of the options is we cut all the costs we have in all of our businesses to weather the storm. Right. And, you know, and you get rid of the extra people because or whatever, you know, whatever extra costs you have, it's like, hey, we're not going to be making the same amount of money for the next six months to 36 months. It's somewhere in there. Cool. Right. <laughs> but I do love what you said is like, but it will get better. And the reality is, is, yes, I don't know if it'll be six months or 36 months. Like I have a I mean, I have a my my guess of what it's going to be. And it's and it's not. What is it? Six I got to hear. I got to hear. All right, so my my wild ass guess and um and like not whatever disclaimer I need to say out there, people don't bet on me. So sure. here's what I think from my little experience. 
I think the Fed's going to keep raising rates for the next nine months. I think that we don't see the impacts of those decisions they make until nine months later. So like the Fed started raising the rate in like January or in February, March this year. We are just now starting to see the impact of that on the market. It takes nine months to feel it. So I think nine more months of raising, nine months after that, so 18 months from now, we're going to be feeling the absolute tightest real estate market we've seen and recession and layoffs and things like that because of that cycle. So then in about 18 months, they start lowering the rate again and going, oh, crap, this went too far. Because what happens is they keep, they, they keep trying to like, you know, raise, they raise rates or lower rates based on news they have today, but it takes so long for stuff to finish. So that's my guess that, that, eight, that for another nine months, they're going to raise <laughs> rates. So it's going to be pretty slow. Eight, about 18 months from now, they'll go, okay, we've kind of hit our wreckage and now start trying to start lowering again. And every time they start lowering in, so many people get excited. Stock yeah. market gets excited. People are like, okay, we're confident to come back in. During, from 2009 to 2012, we sold a lot of flips, even though the market was going down every month. But we right. would buy them for 70 cents on the dollar and sell it for 90. Because people do want to buy. It was just a matter of sellers had to be able to sell for what people wanted to, to pay for. But going back to your, um, your thought of like, it will get better, so get market share. And I think yeah. right now it could be really discouraging for agents out there because they're going to go, I'm working twice as hard and I'm making half the amount of money. Or I'm working twice as hard. And I'm making no money, but remembering like so much of the work that you do over the next year is going to be like putting money in the bank because your experience in like, I've never heard anyone say it actually. Like the reason 2012 was so easy is because when the market changed, most of the agents were gone. Right. Right. Like most of the people were gone because most of the people had given up and anybody that like just survived during that time and kept doing all the things. Like, so you might have buyers right now that you listeners are, you're getting them in there and they can't afford to buy right now or the rates go up. So they're discouraged or, you know, but keeping in contact and keeping them in the loop and keeping them ready because when it does get better, six months to 36 months from now, right? Yeah. Like the, they'll, they'll be ready. And if you're top of mind, you're going to have them all. And then, so what, so what about, so wh what would you add to that? And then what do you do to survive during that time? Well, um, yeah, I mean, you're dead on. And, and by the way, not to digress, but I agree with you. I, I'm personally planning for 18 months. Um, but, you know, with the understanding that it could be longer than that. Uh, in the meantime, yeah, you have to survive. So if you are making zero dollars, you got to change whatever it is you're doing to make some dollars, right? Like, that's not going to work. Like, it, you're doing something completely unproductive. So you don't stay busy for busy's sake. You stay busy with whatever you see is, is causing positive results, right? Um, I'm not sure what that could be. If, if you're into cold calling and you're able, that's what happened to me, right? Like I was always hated cold calling, but 08 to 2010, I'd sit down and make, you know, a hundred calls. Really, it wasn't a hundred. It was like, it started out being a hundred calls a day. And then it began like, okay, I'll make calls until I talk to one person, right? Who seems like they could be interested. So if cold calling is your jam, do that. It's not mine anymore at all. But if that's for you, do it. If open houses are your jam, do open houses. Knocking on doors is internet marketing, whatever it might be, just make sure that you're getting a positive return. So if you are spending money, make sure you're making more money than you spent. And if you are just using sweat equity, make sure that you're getting some traction whenever you do it. And just understand open houses are a great example, right? Like six months ago, you hold an open house, you probably meet 10 buyers. You could hold two open houses and meet two buyers now. That's okay. The market's shrunk. You know, you met two, two is better than zero. 
So as long as whatever you're doing is putting some money in your pocket, enough for you to pay your mortgage, enough for you to pay your, your car, whatever all your minimal expenses are, um, just keep doing that and try new things. You know, I always say focus 80% on what's proven, experiment with 20%. And if you continue to experiment with that 20%, you'll find some new things that are hopefully more productive than what you've been doing over the past however long. Yeah. You know, listeners, you guys need to remind, rewind for about 60 seconds and go through that one more time. Because the, the so spend 80% of your time focusing on what works, but knowing that the results might not be what they were before, but it's still a good result. Right. Going like, yes. So it, it, two, two people at an open house may be the absolute best you're going to get right now. And so that can get discouraging going, hey, this isn't working anymore. Right. And what Eric's saying is it's, it's not that it's not working anymore. It's that the market has shrunk. So the so it may take three times as many calls to get somebody to answer. It may take three times as many doors to get someone to answer. But it's not that the system doesn't work, but it's that the market has shrunk, and so the results just won't be as huge. But you just need to you know keep going. And I I, I like that idea too of you know so whatever does work, whatever gets you that one lead a day or that one lead a week that you can drive on, spend eighty percent of the time. And then 20% of the time experimenting because there will be these new kind of weird niches that start to work. Sure. You know, in Arizona right now, everybody is posting it all over their social media right now. All the lenders there are doing these two, one buy downs right now where the sellers are giving like a $15,000 credit and they're buying loans down to the people's first year is a 2.1% rate. Their second year is a 3.6 and then their third year is a seven, but Hey, three years from now, you're going to be able to refi. Now, that is also scary as hell because yeah. that was exactly what was happening in 06 <laughs> and what made 08 like hurt a little bit harder. But so, but there's people getting creative and there's niches or there will be, um, there's going to be a lot of renters. There's going to be a lot of remodeling. There's gonna, like people that are like a couple of people on my team were like, Hey, they just realized they're in their forever home. They called it. And they said, this is our forever home because they have a 3% interest rate. And if they have to switch to a seven, they could sell their $500,000 house and they would have to buy a $200,000 house or a $300,000 house for like that same payment. So they're like, so we're just here forever. I would argue that that's their forever home though. You know, I mean, people get, they, they, 3% seems very recent, right? So 7% seems massive when things get normalized, when, when whatever the new rates are becomes the new normal and people understand that, then people will start to move even though the new rates are bad. So you have to understand like, like real estate is primarily utility and people live there. They spend all day there. So that, that couple that said, oh, this is our forever home, they, they either have kids or they don't have kids and kids are on the way or something like that, right? It's the most common thing. If that's their forever home, but they don't have kids, but they plan on having kids, that's not their forever home. Not a chance. If uh, that's their forever home and their kids are in the house with them right now and their kids are 14 and 16 years old, that's not their forever home. Not, not a chance. Kids are going to move out. House is too big for them. They're sick of maintaining it. They will sell it in the next, you know, 10 years, something like that. So, you know, people do, quote unquote, get trapped by an interest rate, but only until it's super uncomfortable, right? Once it's super uncomfortable, you're going to spend money to be comfortable as long as you have the money. So we're not in some long term, this is, situation is dire and nobody's ever going to sell again because the rates in, 2000, in, in 2022 were amazing and then they became awful. Um, so you just have to remember that it's going to be okay. And right now is the scariest part of this whole recession. And it's the hardest part of the whole recession because we still have all the agents in the business who are going to go out of business in the next two years. They're still here, like, you know, wasting space. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
people that uh, are shocked by the interest rates are the most shocked by the interest rates that they will be during this whole experience. That is going to wear off. These agents are going to go out of business and whoever's still around is going to get to sell houses to the people that want to move because their kids moved out of the house or they got married um, or they had a kid or something like that. These life events are what cause people to move, not interest rates. Real estate rock stars. This is Aaron Amuchastegui with a quick commercial break. But you guys have been hearing these ads. Follow up boss, right? They've been one of our longest standing sponsors of the podcast. And heck, most of you guys actually use follow up boss. You've heard from so many of our interviews when we're asking people, what is your favorite CRM? Follow up boss is by far the most trusted picked CRM that we hear from people that we're interviewing. You know, follow up is huge. As an investor, there are so many times recently that we reached out one extra time to somebody that two months ago said they thought about selling us the house. And by just following up again, they said, yes, I'm ready to sell today. And they didn't know us from anybody. They were gonna say yes to the next person that reached out. And it was the fourth or the fifth time that we reached out to them. So follow-up is important as an agent, as an investor, as everything. You know, follow-up boss gets you and your team totally organized contacts leads all in one place they have like 250 integrations to all the other things out there for like texting phones voicemails all the other products that are out there it helps you convert leads to deals and then you decide how you want to expand and exactly when that happens for your business so tons of guests in here here's a couple of our guests saying what they like about follow-up boss i think follow-up boss gives you the most integrations Mm-hmm. that are simple and it gives you the best ability to go and integrate large things into one single solitary platform. Um, it tracks everything that I need. I can customize it if I want. If I want to go smart list based, that's fine. If I want to go task based, it's fine. It just really helps me never drop a ball because it's so user friendly. Also, before I forget, Follow-Up Boss is hosting FubCon. Yes, FubCon 2022. It's an annual event hosted by Follow-Up Boss the leading CRM in the real estate industry. The three-day event is packed with actionable tips, strategies that agents can use to double their listings, convert more buyers, and create systems that their agents love using. And right now, as the market gets tougher, a conference like this is exactly the thing you need. The keynote speakers are some of the most iconic agents in the business, and they're sure to inspire and motivate attendees. In addition to educational sessions, there will be plenty of networking opportunities for some of the industry's brightest real estate professionals. FubCon is a perfect opportunity to learn and take your business to the next level. I hope you check it out. It's so, it's so true. Like the, the pain of this is, or the shock of this, right? Mm-hmm. We're not, we're not, I don't think we're in the, as deep of the pain as we're going to get into, obviously, but the shock of this is the, is the strongest right now, right? Because it is like, so the music has stopped. You know, and there was a saying, we were talking about a lot when COVID first hit and, and we were wrong at the time. Like the, I remember when, when COVID hit, we, I fire sold a bunch of real estate that I had that didn't have renters in it. Cause I'm like, the market's going to crash. And I told myself I'd rather sell for 10% below market now instead of for 50% of market later. And I, and I told myself, if everything's fine, I'll make plenty of money later, but I want to get out. And so I did that and then market turned around and, and, but it was fine because then we made plenty of money in real estate over the next year and then people are feeling that right now but one of the things we were saying a lot back then was you know every day in a boom market 
you're like one step closer to a recession. You're like one day closer to a recession because the one thing that is inevitable is change. And one thing that was inevitable was the music couldn't keep going. Right. Right. So we were one step closer. And the benefit of now is like the music has stopped. It is definitive. The recession has started. The market has changed. Months of inventory are up. We're no longer wondering when the shoe is going to drop. It has dropped. Now, we don't know how low it's going to go, but now we can be certain that we're one we're one day closer to it changing and this is temporary and it's remembering it dude, it's it could be so traumatic to be thinking oh my god what are we going to do when we need to keep reminding everybody this is temporary so what is your 6 month 18 month you know 3 year plan as we get to figure out kind of what's next for people in those markets so how what are you telling your agents now so you got 40 agents yeah. What are you telling them? Like, this is what you guys should be working on, like, busy for busy sake. You see, my, my dog is, like, jumping in here. I'm not at my home. I told you I'm not at my home office studio. So usually I've got fun stuff. I didn't, hear, I didn't hear the dog. So Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, exactly what I just said. You know, we, we talk a lot about staying positive and productive. Uh, positive is really, really important. If you let yourself get down and you start feeling like, oh, what I'm doing is just spinning my wheels, you will eventually just stop doing it and you will go out of business. There's no question about mm-hmm. it. So you have to truly believe that things will get better and you can make it through. You have to, um, you have to be realistic. You have to understand that, you know, for the rest of the year, you might, your production might be down 50% between now and the rest of the year. And then next year you need to adjust your perspective on where, on what you're going to produce. If the market shrinks by 30% next year, which it might, that's what happened in 08 was the market shrunk by 30%. You actually have to produce 50% more to get back to mathematically. You have to produce 50% more to get back to your baseline to where you were. So you look at it and go, okay, the market shrunk 30%. Huh? Maybe, um, you know, maybe my production go down by 15 or 20% and that'll be okay. You actually win in that, in that, at that place, right? Like you've actually gained market share there. So you gain market share. That's what you try to do. And then our agents specifically, what should you guys do? I don't know what works for you. You know, some of our agents love holding open houses, do that, right? We have a team that is really amazing at uh, hosting events for their SOI, do that. Um, we have a pretty big leads program and, and some of the agents just crush that. Continue doing that. Just understand that everything's gonna be slower and that's okay. Oh, by the way, you know, if you've got some expenses that you can cut, you should probably think about that. Um, you know, we're talking about going skiing in Colorado uh, this next year instead of going to Chamonix, right? Like we were going to do this big trip to France and I was like, eh, it's probably not going to happen next year. We'll probably wait a little bit for that to, you know, for that to happen. Um, there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and a lot of it is, is so you sleep well, right? Like you talked about, oh, you sold a bunch of stuff whenever the pandemic hit. It, no matter if you would have made a bunch more money, I could defend that decision all day long. You probably slept incredibly well. Uh, versus yep. you would have been you would have been so stressed if you uh, if you hadn't done that but but continue working on stuff you know I interviewed an agent a couple of days ago I was really impressed with her and um, I asked her I said what do you plan on Cause she's experienced she has you know big producer or whatnot I was like what are you gonna do next year she said I'm gonna get every certification I can get not for the letters right but because she wants to just learn so you have time now because you're not selling as many houses so go out and improve yourself invest in yourself um, gain some new skills right get really good at your job. Talk to lots of people. Understand that most of them are probably not going to buy or sell this year. But the more people that you talk to that you impress, that you continue to follow up with via newsletters or whatever it is, they're going to be there whenever the market turns and you're going to be in front of them and they're going to remember you and they're going to remember that you were an awesome person that continued helping them through the, you know, understand what the recession meant. So, yeah. You know, when we talk about the you know interest rates, so there will become a point where 
interest rates will be normal. Like even if it's 7% where it will become accepted mm-hmm. and it will become accepted by new, new buyers or people that want it. So it, whatever the rate becomes, the rates always become accepted. I remember, like, I remember, you know, my dad was telling me about investing and he talked about seven and eight percent, seven, eight percent was what we were always using for our calculator. Right. And it wasn't, and it had to go f- pretty far below that before I even changed that in my mindset of interest mm-hmm. rates. Like it was always like looking at, okay, so then set, like, so my rentals have to, you know, be the 1% rule to cover 7% expense, all that stuff. But the, so there comes this point where, where buyers will start being normal again. And I just really, really love the idea of every, of anybody working right now in production should be reminding themselves that any lead you're finding today, if it turns into a lead that buys in the next three to six months, like a discounted thing from a builder or a flipper or something great, but that lead should be banked as like, this is a lead 12 to 18 months from now. Because you just said really quietly, like, no, you're probably not going to do a deal with for them in the next 12 months. But when it changes, you'll do one for them. You might. I mean, there's going to be. So, yeah. So life events again, right? Are people still going to move for a job? Are people still going to get relocated? Yes. Right. The rental market is going to get even tighter because housing is I mean, housing demand is it's a, a combination of rent and purchase. Right. Everybody has to have a place to live. So as people move away from buying they're going to start renting. Rental prices are going to go up. It's going to get a lot tighter. People are still going to move to whatever metro you're in. They're still going to need a house, probably going to buy. Not all of them, not as many, but there will still be people that buy. People are still going to get married. People are still going to have kids. You know, they, they will buy. But the people that want to move just because they want to move, that, you know, oh, my house is a little bit too small for me. They're probably not in the market for 18 months, right? So with them out of the market, when you talk to those folks, you just assume like this is going to be a long-term lead. And man, the worst thing you can ever do is try to pressure somebody in that situation. There's nobody in the world that can convince somebody to buy a house if they've already decided that they're not going to. So why even try? And you come across as incredibly desperate. You'll just totally torch the relationship. So just be laid back, give fantastic advice and let them know that you're there to help them whenever they're ready to do anything. What CRMs or systems would you recommend for people for those longer drip campaign things? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I've used Follow Up Boss forever. Um, I'm was actually one of like their first users, and I'm, I'm actually friends with Dan, the the uh, CEO over there. So uh, oh, awesome. this is not a plug for them, just specifically, but they really are the best, in my opinion, the best real estate CRM on the market. Um, newsletters, drips. You know, you got to bring something of value. So I went to a really mediocre state school. And I always joked that the only thing I got out of it was I write nice emails. Um, I have an English degree. So, uh, so we write very topical uh, newsletters. We send about 18, 18 of them a year, uh, one and a half a month. Uh, and then we have a, uh, we have a proprietary uh, uh, market update tool that sends sold, you know, sold listings to people, things like that. And we watch open rate really closely. So I would recommend everybody with whatever drips you're using if you're not monitoring open rate, start because you could be sending a lot of junk and you don't realize it. Um, but you want to watch open rate. You want to make sure that your open rate is higher than call it 35%. Um, we're, ours are pretty high. Uh, so we know people like them, right? Other than that, in terms of tech, really kind of less is more, you know? Uh, I don't know that we would go pile a lot of other stuff on there. We're really just using follow-up boss and some proprietary stuff. Plus we have a back office management tool uh, through RealScale. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Fallout Boss is our it's it's our big they're, they're our big sponsor. The, oh, cool! Uh, I didn't realize they, that they, they, they've been our longest standing sponsor of the podcast now for for a while. And so, you know, what's funny is that little clip you just said will probably be part of an ad one of these days because nice. more often than not, they they're, they're the market leader 
in, in that stuff. But one of the things you talked about that I haven't heard agents talk about very often is open rate, right? Yeah. And so what that means for agents listening out there right now, so I own, I own several software companies and things like that that are all about digital marketing. And that's like, everybody is sending emails and doing email marketing. And if you're not, you should. That should be one of the tools we're doing. And when you're talking about you should like do social media or you should door knock or you should do letters, you should try all that stuff in your 20%. But one of those things you need to be doing is some sort of a follow-up. Email newsletters are cool because you could be telling people, hey, here's what's new in the market, here's what's not, or here's what's new with my kids and my family, like the whole combination of everything. But that open rate thing, afterward you could say, hey, I sent it to 500 people on my list, but if it's, um, it's, it's but, but if only 10 or 20 people are opening it, 10 or 20% are opening it, then you've got to start looking at, I need better subject lines or I need better content or how many people are unsubscribing and why. It's even more like one of the benefits of a recessionary slower market is you can dig into the weeds of that stuff a lot more. So if you haven't, I bet a bunch of you guys out there listen that you're sending emails and you've never quite done the analysis of what's working. And as Eric said that just now, is that big reminder of like, right now you have the time to go yes. through and look at all these emails. Yes. And you're like, oh, this one only had a 10% open rate. That subject line sucked. I should actually just resend that email to everybody else with a different subject line. Or people are opting out because of this. Or, or, hey, everybody opened this one and read it a bunch. What did I talk about? Oh, that was the one where I actually had a picture of my dog. Maybe I need to do that. Like, there's so much crazy analysis out there you can go into. Do you do much of that? People love puppies, man. Um, so, yeah, no, so, yeah, we do. We we, uh, we, we monitor open rate pretty closely. Our um, our newsletter has, it's, it's sort of organically grown into what it is now. And, and it's real, um, you know, it's, it's real stats driven. So I've, uh, over time, just from feedback, uh, I've, mod I've modified like what, you know, what statistics we're including, whatnot. We've, in we've improved the message and we watch the open rate increase and we see people actually email us specifically and say, hey, can we get on, get on your newsletter? What you're talking about though, with the A-B testing subject lines, um, yeah, million percent. Uh, if you have time to do that now, you should absolutely do that. And a uh, marketing guy that I, I work with on a lot of our pay-per-click stuff, uh, he has a saying that I love that he says, hey, let's just get it out there and then follow the data is what he always says. And that makes perfect sense. So like anytime you're running ads, we're always running like three different ads and then you just go, well, which one is performing the best? You know, Tim Ferriss is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So do you know um, the four hour work week, the book that like made him famous? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Right. So um, it's a corny name of a book and he'll say it's a corny name of a book. How he got the name of the book was this, this was kind of early when he did this. Um, he ran something like 10 different Google ads and didn't care what sort of leads or anything like that. All he looked at was the click through rate on it. So 10 different ads with 10 different titles of the book that he was considering. And he went with four hour work week because it had the highest, had the highest click through rate. So you can do the same thing with email subjects, right? Like figure out, I can tell you with pretty strong confidence that shorter email subjects work until they get too short, right? Way too long is not gonna be good, but play around with this stuff and figure out what's ideal, what's ideal for you. And along the same topic, you know, Aaron, you're saying uh, you have time to do this stuff right now. You know what? Like get really excellent at your job, really excellent. Try new things. Um, if, if email is your thing, like a million percent, dig into that and get really, really good at that. So you've got the time now, guys, six months ago, 12 months ago, did anybody have time to do anything other than write offers or field offers? No. <laughs> now you have the time. So take advantage, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two things there that I thought stuck out great was like, get it out there, then follow the data. Yeah. Right. And that could be with anything that could be with sending letters or online marketing or door knocking. It's like, let's get into some action and follow the data. 
I knock on a hundred doors, three people answer. It turns into this, like, that's how long it takes me. Cool. That's the data. Or I send the letters. I spend this much money or the phone calls, whatever. So like get into action, but then follow the data because right now we can actually look at the data and the data was skewed a year ago. Yep. It's kind of like, and go ahead. I was going to say, and what's amazing about it is that whenever the market turns and now the market's bigger and you've gained market share, you've also gained all these skills. Those skills don't go away. And that's what's going to help you gain even more market share after the market's good again, because it will get good again. Yeah. Now the um, I think I, I think I think it's great advice, and it's a, and it's a great idea. Another thing that I think people should be doing right now is like really dialing in their standard operating procedures. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we first started scaling really heavy in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, and just spending a weekend of really dialing in of. You know, agents that are especially newer in their first few years get something in escrow and there's so much personalization all the time. And it's like, oh, I should remember to send them out this. Or if they're not using a transaction coordinator, it's like, oh, today's inspection day or whatever. But it's really coming out to the idea that there should be a, the same email that's sent on day five of escrow to everybody, the same email that's sent on day seven. Oh, by the way, the, the buyers are allowed to do their inspection anytime in the next so many days. I'll let you know when they do it. They have up until that day to actually like cancel or ask for repairs or like explaining like, here's what a request for repair really means. And here's how this one applies. There's so many things that when we're busy last year, the year before, we're figuring it out as we go. And so many people would say that right now we're just kind of figuring it out as we go. But now you can actually look back and go, hey, here was the email that was sent really well. Here's the standard operating procedure. Another thing that Tim Ferriss helped me, that, that, that was a game changer when I read the four work week years ago. Yeah. But he also helped me get into like VAs. And like virtual yeah. assistants that could really that can really help as you dial that in, you know, to have a VA really be successful, you've got to have those really good standard operating procedures. But hey, on I, day three, this is what gets sent out. So you work on that stuff now. Maybe you don't want to spend the money on a VA right now because you don't have the volume yet. Or maybe if you do, instead of you know, maybe a VA is a way you can do the same amount of volume for, for less money. But it's gonna be one of the steps for when this market turns in twelve to eighteen months and you're one of the market you know, however long, and you're one of the people that have been pushing, and now you've got that lead. If you've got your systems in place and you're really good at your job, then you can launch, you can hire a new employee that can take over the SOPs or a VA or anything. Yeah, I think uh, I think this strategy is probably, of the people that I've been talking to lately, man, there, there's, there hasn't been a whole lot of like hope and push and what to drive for. You know, Eric, we, we only have a few minutes left. Anything else you really want to tell people about? Any, you know, people are going to want to reach out to you, ask you about, your life. What are like some final thoughts and any and anything you'd like to push people to go look at or reach out to you? Um, man, I'm not sure. Uh, let me think. I don't know. Uh, you want to talk about books? I love. I'm, I'm not really yeah. I'm sure. Sure. Okay. So um, here's some books. Right. So uh, measure what matters uh, is an amazing book. Um, it's going to help you build what are called OKRs for your objectives and key results, and that's super duper important right now. Oh, here's one. It's not even a book. Uh, Who Moved the Cheese? Uh, you can watch that on YouTube for like four minutes, and that'll speak to everybody about, you know, what do you do whenever things change. The four disciplines of execution, whenever you do start hiring people, VAs, employees, whatever it might be, uh, 4D is just a phenomenal job of helping you focus on what's important. And they have a concept, they call it a WIG, a wildly important goal. And they have a whirlwind. The whirlwind is your daily just whatever. It's what you have to do every single day, uh, from, you know, sending emails back, whatnot. But what it does, it's impossible to control the whirlwind. That's what they say. 
But what you can do is you can box it in so you always focus on your wildly important goal. So that's really important and that that coincides really well with with measure what matters. <laughs> Other than that, you know, uh, I would say this isn't even a business book, but um, the comfort crisis is really good. Uh, it's uh, talks a lot about how we are all wired. Uh, well, not wired to societies like helping everybody be comfortable as much as possible, but we're actually evolutionarily designed to not be comfortable. Um, so that's a pretty good one. And I think that that would probably be relevant to what everybody's going to experience for the next six to 36 months. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Other than that, man, I don't, I'm not sure, you know, anybody, uh, you're welcome to reach out. Uh, we actually, when you're talking about SOPs, uh, I'm a massive systems guy. And so we have a, if you go to our website, you can't find it um, by clicking around, but I'll tell you a secret. You go to the website, brownlandresidential.com and slash company dash guide. And you'll see like hundreds of pages of our own, uh, of our own standard operating procedures, how to's, whatnot, um, tutorials, things like that. And if anybody's curious on how do you build processes, how do you build systems? I'm not even sure, like you could email me. Um, I, you know what, here's a hint on how you start them. Uh, whenever I hired my first assistant, she didn't work out, go figure, right? Um, and then I hired the second assistant. I was like, man, I gotta train this person again. So they were sitting literally next to me in my house. And every time I asked a question, I said, hey, instead of asking me the question, I want you to email it to me. And then I would, I had a, one Google Doc and I would write how to do it in the Google Doc and I would send it back to them and say, okay, look, here's how you do it. And then what do you know? That person didn't work out either, but I had this documentation for the next person that were, they came in. So that's how you can write systems. And then uh, Gmail templates. If you're using Gmail in the browser, uh, it's, a, it's a little feature that a lot of people don't know about. You go to settings and enable Gmail templates. And that's, if you have these, everybody writes the same emails over and over, like you mentioned, Aaron. And um, whenever you realize you've written, you've sent the same email like three times, add it to your Gmail templates, and then you'll watch your template library grow. And then a year later, you'll look at it and go, oh my God, I just saved like hours last year with these templates. And that's how you can start with, that's how you can start with systems. So I can literally, like if we were talking about systems, we can go for another hour. So I'll just kind of shut up now, but. Dude, um, that's. Yeah. That is great stuff, Eric. The uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna host some meetups sometime in in Austin and cool. probably get some people to come travel. We do a big mastermind in like February and March that some of the listeners came to last year that we host in Austin. Oh, but Austin. The, um, yeah. So yeah, so we we hosted here. We had like 60 people come out last year. We think we have 100 people come out this year. But the man, I'm gonna have to have you come and get together and and hang out and talk systems. I love that stuff. The Gmail templates was a game changer. That that little thing, all the things you wrote down. I wrote down all those books. And listeners, I think you should too. Measure what matters. Who moved the cheese? That's the five-minute video. Four disciplines of execution. Comfort crisis. I love that you're like, go to my website and you can see all of our SOPs or let's talk about it. And a simple tip. I've been using an app called Tetra lately, yeah, which is just like this like different spot. And so every time I'm about to do something, and before I'm replying in the email, I'm actually putting it into Tetra because Gmail is beautiful for searching and Google Drive is beautiful for searching. So my SOPs were always in Drive. But the one thing that of having it be like Tetra, which is a different site, the real benefit of that is knowing like, hey, that's where the SOPs are. Because if you go into my Google Drive and you search a question, a lot of other documents could come up too. But the cool thing about Tetra is it's the place where we're housing all of our SOPs now. So before I answer anything, I actually go put it in the Tetra. I send them a link to the Tetra so they see that as the answer. And then the Tetra is so searchable for like, even like a bank bill or an in, any frequently asked question that's happening. And so, um, yes, I think for anybody right now with systems, taking like the little extra step of it's in an email or it's in a drive or it's in a place like Tetra, really cool stuff. Well, I think you and I will talk about that stuff 
like crazy later. So the, I think you told everybody. So what's your, what's your email or social media handle? However you want people to reach out to you. What 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 you say it was? Oh yeah, um, I mean you can email me Eric at Bramlett.me. You can Google me. I pop up. Uh, trying to think like social media stuff. Yeah, I'm hard to find on social media. Uh, my my Instagram handle is totally. It, it's just my personal account. So you'll see a lot of pictures of me like rock climbing or biking and stuff like that. So that's fun stuff. Well, cool. Eric at Eric at Bramlett works. Eric, this was a lot of fun, man. The uh, I, I'm, I'm sure we'll see each other out, out biking around and um, we'll bump into each other in Austin. But the, this was a yeah. fun interview, man. It was a, it was a fun surprise. The I got you and I got into real estate all around the same time and had similar journeys in other places in the world. So um, this was a lot of fun. So thanks for coming on the show and totally just sharing your knowledge and your ideas and your inspiration today. Awesome. Aaron, it's been a real pleasure. I uh, hope we meet in real life at some point in time. And uh, yeah, man, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Cool. And Real Estate Rockstars, thanks for listening. All right, Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Muchastegui jumping in again to thank you for listening to the show. Hopefully, you guys loved listening to that one. And I want to make sure that you know about all of the extra resources that we have. And also, we need your help. They say podcasts are free. You get to listen to podcasts for free. But what is the cost of that podcast? I would say if I could beg you to pay anything for that podcast, I would say the cost of the podcast is going and giving a review. So whether you download it on Google or Apple or YouTube or anywhere else, please go give us a review. Say what you liked, what you didn't like. It helps us get better guests. The more reviews, the higher we get in the rate rankings. Right now, we are the biggest podcast out there for real estate agents and we want to keep that spot because we know there's lots of podcasts out there so go give us a review also be sure to go to hybendigital.com if you liked any of the resources that those real estate agents talked about we've got a huge video vault of those resources for free every penny that comes on the podcast that we interview they give us something that helps them get their deals or helps them work with their clients and we put that in the toolbox in our vault for you to go to hybendigital.com and you can get it. If you're looking for real estate education, go to rebusuniversity.com. We have all sorts of courses in there to help agents succeed in real estate. How to get the listing, how to negotiate deals, you know, how to become an investor, all sorts of different stuff, rebusuniversity.com. And if you want to chat with me, go find me on Instagram. If you come find me on Instagram, you can send me messages. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what you liked, what you didn't like. We try to put a bunch of content out there too. You can find me in two different places. It's at rerockstars.com for our Real Estate Rockstars page or at erinamuchastegui.com for my personal Instagram page where I can chat with you about all sorts of different things. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.